You are listening to The Vet Podcast, presented by veterinarian Dr. Brian Greger from New Zealand and featuring an international team of animal health professionals. Join us as we discuss pet health issues from around the world. James Herriot and All Creatures Great and Small evoke memories of old-style vetting. Many of us would have read the box or at least seen the television series. The author was veterinarian Elf White. I am lucky enough to have caught up with Jim White, Elf's son, who, in the first of a couple of interviews, talks to me about a tourist venture, the world of James Herriot, that is located in the old original practice in Thursk in the UK. And staying in the UK, Charlotte Farr tells us what is behind the push for a ban on the sale of puppies and kittens from pet shops. In the small town of Thursk in Yorkshire in the UK, there is a very popular attraction called the World of James Herriot. Who better to talk to us about it than Jim White? Now Jim is Elf White's son, and Elf wrote under the pseudonym of none other than James Herriot. To anyone who has read the James Herriot books or seen the television series, Skeldale House was the epicentre of the action. The real Skeldale House was at 23 Kirkdate in Thrisk. Now it has become the home of the world of James Herriot. Jim, how did this transformation from veterinary practice to tourist attraction come about? Well, what happened was, Brian, that our practice had, had transformed from a mainly agricultural practice in my father's day in the 1940s and 50s uh, to a very much a more small animal orientated. And the old house was no longer suited to, uh, dare I say, we're trying to, we were trying to be a pro- progressive small animal practice. That coupled with the desperate situation of parking vehicles outside meant that we had to really vacate the building. And we've, the practice now has built a, a new one, purpose-built practice, on the outskirts of Thursk. When this happened, the local district council decided they would purchase this premises and make a tourist attraction in the memory of James Herriot. That is how it started. If I was to visit 23 Kirkgate, what would I see? You would see the the practice uh, premises, which doubled as a family home, because I lived there as well as a small boy. You would see it as it was in the 1940s up to the early 1950s when we left the place. Uh, You will see the old family stuff, family heirlooms of James Herriot's family, you will also see uh, it, it's, a, it's a, really the only museum in the country that is one dedicated really to veterinary history. Um, you'll see lots of placards on the wall devoted to the history of the veterinary profession. There's lots of ancient instruments that they used to use in those days. Um, you'll see a film um, about James Harriet. You'll see a biographical department depicting his life his ups and downs of his life. In fact, you can spend anywhere between two hours and about six hours in there, depending if you want to try and read everything. There's also a department dedicated to to the kids because trying to reach out to the younger generation, some of whom, of course, weren't brought up with James Herriot as we were. Um, All little games they can play, practicing to be a vet and see what the knowledge of animals and farms are and so on. It's a very entertaining place. One of 
the pictures that I've seen is with a girl with a, sort of a classic veterinary pose of her hand up the back end of a cow. So obviously things are, are quite interactive there. What would be your favourite interactive segment of the whole shooting box? Well, they all love that one. They love putting the hand up the cage. You know, it's a funny thing, isn't it, Brian, that people think vets spend the 90% of the time with the hands up cows' backsides, um, which, of course, we don't... The practice doesn't do so much now because it's, it's, it's ultrasound. <laughs> but nevertheless, the public think this is a... I, I would add, however, that in the Yorkshire winters when I was a young vet, uh, being a hand, having a hand up there on a really cold day was nice and warm, you know? <laughs> but... Uh, this girl is, has a hand up. She's they're, they're practicing see, to see if they're strong enough. There's a calf's foot in there, basically. It's a carving situation, and there's a calf's foot. They're going to see if they're strong enough to to carve the cow, and they seem to love this. Now, were the TV shows actually filmed in this building? No, no, no. Nothing was filmed in the building. Well, they couldn't film in our building. It, it was a working veterinary practice because they were they, they were in the 70s and early 80s, the late 70s, early 80s, when they were filming all creatures great and small. Well, they couldn't come to us. Uh, we were we were a, a working, a very busy veterinary practice. Um, most of the indoor stuff, the filming of the indoor stuff, was down to a place called Pebble Mill in Birmingham, in the Midlands, and other veterinary surgeons were involved there. So you actually worked out of this building? Yes, yes. So what, what do you feel like now when you actually enter the building and see it dressed up in its finery as it, as it was so many years ago? Well, it's very, it's very nostalgic, Brian. To be quite honest, you know, it's. Uh, I've got used to it now because we've been in the place so often. There are so many visitors from all over the world coming to the world of James Herriot, um, and my sister Rosie and I, uh, we help out and we show we show them round the place and give them some of the inside stories about the James Herriot stories, what the real the real events were, and and yeah, when it was first. Opened. It was very nostalgic indeed to see a place where I used to be a small boy, you know, and uh, all coming back to life again. Yeah, very nostalgic. Jim, I've always been fascinated by old veterinary instruments. Yeah. Now, it looks as if you've got a great exhibition of old veterinary instruments. What, in your opinion, would be the most bizarre instrument that you've got in the large collection that you have there? Well, there are some instruments there, Brian, that nobody knows what they are. They're so amazingly, weirdly fangled instruments that even the members of the Veterinary History Society here, uh, people even older than me, um, don't know what on earth they are. Um, some of the bizarre ones that, that I, well, that strike home with me are the, the incredible things for conjuring calves out of cows in the days before caesarean section. Some of the weird embryo tomes and winching apparatus. Some of these winches that they had used to put on cows to winch them, winch the calves out. They look more like raising the Titanic than pulling a calf out of a cow, you know. Um, it, it, I think we've made tremendous progress there. There's a lot of those. There's a lot of strange and weird castration instruments too. Yeah, anybody coming there that's interested in veterinary instruments, if you're interested, you should pay a visit to this place because you'd be absolutely fascinated. In fact, you might be able to tell us what some of them are. <laughs> <laughs> I may have some of them in the back of my truck still. Say, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, some of them stand the test of time. Exactly. You know, the old, the old houseman gags and things like that. I, oh, I yeah. used those right until, the, until I retired in the early 2000s. <laughs> Jim, as chance would have it, last Friday would have been 
Elf, your father, James Herriot's uh, 99th birthday. Yes. The yeah. day after that, on the Saturday, there was a dinner for the James Herriot Statue and Legacy Fund. How did that go? It went extremely well. The statue is terrific. Rosie and I weren't all that keen to begin with because my father was a very modest and retiring man, didn't, always ducked out of the limelight. But having seen the statue, it was very professionally done. Uh, we've changed our minds. Um, he's a man who's done the statue of all sorts of famous people. Um, and it was very, very good. We, we had a, an, a dinner and an auction to follow. And I think we raised about 11,000 quid, 11,000 pounds, which is pretty good for a small town like this. Mm. So can you give um, us a, a, a rundown of what this fund is? The fund, uh, it's, it's uh, run really by the man who runs the world of James Herriot. He's been very pro-James Herriot from the word go, this man. He's saved the centre, really, from, from possible closure. It's now doing very well. And it's a unique opportunity. It's developed a legacy to support young people uh, who wish to become veterinary surgeons or to pursue a career dedicated to animal welfare. And I think this is a thing that my father would have been very proud of because, uh, as you know, reading the Herriot books, one of the big things about James Herriot was he was such a compassionate man. You know, the welfare of his animals always came first, you know. And uh, I think this is a fund in his name that, uh, that he would have really approved of. And it got off to a good start last night. If people wish to contribute to the fund, how can they do that? You could, they could go onto the website at the World of James Herriot, which is uh, www.worldofjamesherriot.com. If you went onto the website, they would certainly give you the, the email. But it's a, it's a very worthwhile fund. We've already had a, a donation from Australia, funnily enough. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> What, what what I'll do actually, Jim, is I will put a link on our podcast site and also on our Facebook page. So if people do wish to contribute to the fund or just check out the world of James Herriot, they can find it from there. So Jim, so we'll wrap up this podcast now. Thank you very, very much for the time that you have given us. British MPs have called on the government to ban the sale of puppies in the high street pet shops. We catch up again with British vet Charlotte Farr to find out what is behind this. Charlotte, I noticed that what the British MPs are calling for is a ban on the sale of puppies in the high street pet shops. Is there anything else behind this? Well, there's two main problems with the sale of puppies in pet shops and also in other high street retailers, and it doesn't actually include the actual conditions within the stores themselves because they're often very good. The first problem is that they encourage impulse buying, so prospective owners don't undergo the vigorous checks that would be in place for an animal was rehomed from a rescue centre or bought from a reputable breeder. The second problem we have is that many high street retailers selling puppies source them from large commercial units, which we call puppy farms. And often on these farms, um, puppies and kittens are weaned and separated from their mums far too early. So they're often taken away at around four weeks old instead of the ideal eight to 12 weeks. And this causes them to have really poor immune systems, often leads to behavioural problems because they're poorly socialised um, early on in their lives. Um, and they're often more likely to show aggression as well. 
also these animals which are used for breeding aren't screened for genetic illnesses. Still breeders will screen their animals for types of heart disease, eye disease and orthopaedic conditions to reduce the chances of their offspring inheriting these problems. And this obviously isn't done in puppy farms because it's far too expensive for them to do. Um, and this brings us to the real reason why people buy from pet shops and puppy farms, which is price. Many of the excellent breeders charge a lot more for their puppies and kittens and are therefore undercut by these puppy farms. Um, and so obviously people will buy from the pet shops rather than the proper breeders. Are there any controls at the moment on the puppy farms? Well, there are a lot of animal welfare acts in place in the UK which should control the sale of these animals. So there, are, there is a welfare act um, for breed, the breeding and sale of dogs which says that any person who breeds and sells dogs or puppies um, as a business has to obtain a licence to do so from their local authority. And to get this licence, they should be checked to ensure that they have suitable accommodation, food and water provision and bedding, that the animals are suitably exercised and visited at reasonable intervals, and all precautions are supposed to be in place to control the spread of disease amongst them. There are also welfare acts to control hobby breeders and um, to say that it's an offence for um, people to cause unnecessary suffering of animals or to fail to provide for its welfare. And all of these things are regulated by local authorities. Um, but the problems we have are that local authorities are very reluctant to investigate these suspicions because it's very expensive to do so. And often they don't realise they actually have the power to investigate um, or they just don't have the time to carry it out. A lot of the breeders who currently hold these licences to sell animals don't actually meet the required standards and probably haven't been properly checked or regularly checked. And this is something that needs to be addressed. So they are looking at it by trying to control the high street pet shops. Now, I'm sure it's the same in the UK and around a lot of the world as it is in New Zealand. There are increasing numbers of puppies and kittens sold online. And you've still got the old, you know, do you want to buy a cat or do you want to buy a dog? Um, people are selling things at, at the back of the hotel. Is there anything that is being done about these guys? You're absolutely right. Over here we have the same problems. We have lots of puppies and kittens sold out the back of cars via newspaper and website advertisements. And the rise of internet use over here makes this a massive problem because these animals can be transported over massive distances now and owners can't see where they've come from. The one thing that has been done to try and control this is that the Pet Advertising Advisory Group has begun to impose stricter standards for these advertisements since January this year. And since then they've taken down over 100,000 adverts for not meeting their standards. And this has gone some way to reducing the problem but obviously um, this is very very difficult to regulate. What are the regulations that are being proposed by the, the this group of MPs? Well, at the start of the month, um, there was a big debate that took part in, um, in the House of Commons with MPs on all sides contributing. And this was started by an e-petition that was nationwide and signed by over 100,000 people. They've called on the government to review all existing legislation and immediately ban the sale of all puppies and kittens from pet shops and high street premises. They want every prospective owner to always be able to see the mother of the puppy or kitten that they're buying um, and to ban them from sales um, in retail centres that can't be regulated properly. There were calls for the government um, and animal welfare and rescue charities also to better educate people about responsible dog ownership and choosing a dog responsibly um, and buying from ethical breeders or rescue centres. It was also proposed that we improve traceability in puppies and kittens and this is going to happen soon over here because it's going to be compulsory to microchip all dogs in the UK from 2016. So do you think that these proposals are likely to become law? I think so eventually. The current debate has got a very large following through social media and it's got the backing of MPs from all sides who took part in this debate and they all shared their own experiences of purchasing their own pets. Following the debate, it was agreed that new guidance will definitely be set out for local authorities to ensure the proper licensing of breeders and breeding premises and to make sure they're inspected properly. And this will definitely stop pro-breeders from being able to start such animals. 
there's obviously an agreement that something needs to change and there's a good chance the law will change and in my opinion it will change alongside the compulsory microchipping in 2016 but the one thing that we can change now um, is to educate all our potential pet owners about the problems of buying from high street retailers and unfortunately emotions often get in the way and people are more likely to buy the poorly sickly looking animals because they feel sorry for them but unfortunately this just fuels more puppies and kittens to be produced in this way so the message that we're all trying to get across to pet owners is that if they can't see the puppy or kitten that they're buying in its home environment with its mother, then alarm bells should ring and they should certainly not consider buying it. You have been listening to The Vet Podcast. You can find us on Facebook, The Vet Podcast app and Play Store, iTunes, Google Play or bookmark us in your favourite podcast player. To contact us, message through Facebook or email vetpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you.